Bigfoot is a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Sasswhat, a show about Bigfoot. I am one of your hosts, Mark Matsky, and I am joined tonight by my son, Andy. Greetings. Greetings. How's it going? Good. We've been enjoying March Madness oh my here goodness. at Sasswhat Tower. Um, way too much, way too much sleep has been lost because of March Madness. It's only once a year, though. It's only once a year. It's the most wonderful time of the year for a sports fan, in my opinion. Sorry, Duke. Glad to see you go. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, every fan of Duke that listens to Sasswhat. Yeah, I feel that a quick explanation is in order. We have had the great, great privilege of attending two NCAA men's basketball final games, and both of them were won by Duke University over teams that we really <laughs> vastly preferred. So it's not a deep-seated hatred for Duke, but it's sort of a resentment mm-hmm. because, um, I don't know. We, go Butler. Go, go <laughs> Butler. Go Wisconsin. Michigan. Yes. Sorry, you sort of Ohio. hopped on the uh, Wolverine bandwagon, mm-hmm. which kind of makes me happy in a way because I grew up in central Michigan watching Wolverines basketball. I really like Detroit their basketball Pistons. team. It's a good basketball team. DJ Wilson, good at rebounding. Basketball what? A show about March Madness. Right. Only once a year. Yeah, so this will be our sixth podcast that we record together on basketball <laughs> and uh, the sports world. They found Tom Brady's jerseys, so everyone, <laughs> please celebrate. So, <laughs> um, moving on. I think uh, one thing I'd like to make sure that we talk about is... Um, Our one news desk item of tonight is something I'm very happy to share with you, and that is issue number five of Cryptid Culture magazine is now available. It's kind of cool because Cryptid Culture is printed on demand, so you order an issue and they print it just for you. That's cool. I didn't didn't know that. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's pretty exciting. The um, topic of the article that I wrote is this podcast. So the title is A Brief History of Sasswhat, and it just takes you through sort of my background, how I got interested in Bigfoot, then us meeting Seth, and all the people that we've talked to, leading up to then the formation of Small Town Monsters and our trip to Falk, and not in huge detail, but just enough, and kind of winding up, the, the article winds up with Minerva Monster Day, and sort of the future of Sasswhat, talking about the transition of Seth stepping away and you, Andy, stepping in. And I'm really excited about it, and I hope that people have the chance to see it. Um, what did I want to say about that? Oh, I think this is the only place that this article is going to appear in this form. I mean, in the future there might be a revised edition where we talk about more things that we've done, but in this form, I don't think I'm going to post this on any other site. So if you want to read the article on the brief history of Sasswhat, you're pretty much going to have to go to Cryptid Culture, um, 
cryptidculture.com is their website and they will direct you to the actual group that prints the magazine. I think it's blurb.com. But anyway, uh, pick it up if you're interested. Also, we will have copies available when we are out and about meeting people. Uh, The next time it's going to happen is in early July at Willoughby Hills Public Library. So I just wanted to mention as well that other articles in Issue 5 include David Weatherly's The Winter Hounds of Ireland, Scott Marlowe's Disney Cryptids, Colin Schneider's Monsters of the Fae, and I should mention that I just did an interview with Colin. He's going to be on a future episode of this show, and I'm really, really excited about that because he is an amazing young man, 16 years old, goes by a Crypto Kid, sort of his handle online, and just a fascinating guy to talk to. A John Mazaros, Clergy of the Deep, Kevin Nelson's Van Meter Visitor, Robert Robinson's Water Monsters, oh, and Mark Matsky's Sasswat Podcast with artists Thomas Finley and Rob Roy Menzies rounding out the issue. So go online, pick it up. I would love to have you read it and respond and see what you think about the brief history of Sasswat. So this episode is about, well... Alaska. It is our next installment in the Sasquatch Nation series. Um, we did Alabama, and I'm pretty sure, well, that was well-received, and so we have moved on to Alaska. And, Dad, you have a little bit about that? I have a lot about that, actually. <laughs> but um, before, as we get into each of these states that we're doing as part of Sasquatch Nation, I think it's really important that we at least paint a quick picture of the state and some of the regions in the state that may or may not be hospitable towards a large human-like possible primate-type creature. And the thing about Alaska is that there is tons and tons of space. And that's something that um, Beans is going to comment on in his letter that I'm going to read in just a little bit. So let's get into some of the facts about Alaska. Alaska has a population, and this census was taken in 2015, of 738,000 people. So just let that sink in for a second. Less than a million people live in the entire state of Alaska, which represents an area of 663,267 square miles. Lots of room. Um, It's been estimated and I found this pretty interesting, that there are 100,000 active glaciers, which accounts for 29,000 square miles in the state. Roughly 5% of the state's surface area is active glacier. Six hundred and I'm sorry, 6,640 miles of coastline exist. That doesn't include islands. And if you include islands, that accounts for 33,904 miles of shoreline. I'll read that one more time just to make sure you caught that. 33,904 miles of shoreline. And what you're going to see as we move through these reports is that the vast majority of these accounts involve water in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a river 
or a shoreline sighting, somebody in a boat witnesses a creature, you know, digging on the in the sand or something like that. But water is a really omnipresent sort of thing in these Alaska reports. Now, I ran across this website. I haven't even told you about this yet, Andy, but it's essentially a website that is trying to um, entice people to move to Alaska. And sort of Anchorage is sort of the uh, the linchpin of all of this, but it's sort of in general just trying to sell Alaska to somebody who is a prospect to move there. And so it's really interesting because you get to see what they sort of claim to be their strengths. And so I derive some of this information from there. It says, you know, in Alaska, it combines the convenience of the modern age with freedom and ad- the freedom and adventure of living on edge of vast unspoiled wilderness, which is is true. The website claims there's the friendliest people you will meet in America <laughs> live in Alaska. <laughs> now we've met an Alaskan and we're going to read Beans's letter in a minute or two and he's very friendly. Mm-hmm. So anecdotally he supports <laughs> <laughs> the um the, the nature of the people that you meet there. It's also described as a tight-knit community uh, with a taste for adventure and the outdoors. So sort of a self-reliant type of attitude. And that, I think, is probably very accurate. Um, it, it's thought of as the last frontier. That's the state's nickname. And with that being said, then it makes a huge amount of sense that if you're going to actually uproot and go to Alaska, you had better be pretty self-reliant, pretty um, self-dependent, because you're going to be responsible for really everything about your own safety and, you know, being able to feed yourself, stay warm, all of those type of things. There's also low taxes in Alaska. That was really, that was mentioned a number of times and plenty of elbow room. So if you don't want nosy neighbors, Alaska is a place that you might want to consider. Of the 20 highest mountain peaks in the United States, 17 of those are in Alaska. And the highest, do you know the highest mountain peak in North America? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> the look on your I face fail. tells me no. I fail you, Alaska. <laughs> it is Denali. Denali tops out at 20,320 feet. And as we'll hear tonight in the reports that I have, Denali's in the uh, interior of Alaska, and not a lot of reports that I got are from that region. We'll talk about where the regions seem to be, where the reports and the regions seem to be clustered. It goes almost without saying, uh, if you are familiar with Alaska, there are really long days in the summer. In the weeks leading up to late June summer solstice, the sun is about... It's above the horizon 18 to 21 hours a day, depending on what part of the state you're in. And so that helps explain some of the reports and the cases that you, when you sift through and talking about Alaska, for example, uh, Bob Titmus is a name that a lot of our listeners would recognize. He had a sighting from a boat at 10 p.m. And he said there was, it was the evening and there's still plenty of light. And at first you hear that and you think, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, what's that all about? But then you're reminded that Long summer days are are just par for the course in Alaska, and the converse is also true. 
from mid-November to the end of January, there's an extreme lack of daylight that can really work on a person's mind. The uh, Come to Alaska website <laughs> said that a lot of residents take like a two-week trip during that time of year just to escape the effects of almost continual darkness. And uh, I found that kind of fascinating as well. As far as climate is concerned, Anchorage and southeast Alaska stay relatively warm uh, because of the ocean. As soon as you move away from the ocean, temperatures in the interior can drop to minus 30 degrees for weeks at a time. And it's, they called it, oh, I forget what exactly, it was like, uh, um, what, do you, what do you call uh, the weather like in a climate, climate? That's what I'm okay. thinking of, climate. That's cold. That is super cold. That's super cold. And it, they called Alaska a microclimate because you can get in your car and drive an hour, and the climate can be completely different just depending on where you are. So that was kind That's of cool. That's cold. Minus 30. That's regular temperature. Now, they say it's a dry cold, so it feels different, sort of like a dry heat. It's a dry cold. And they, it actually was that, that was used on the, on the site. <laughs> Move and, to Alaska. It's a dry cold. And along with the microclimate idea, there's huge variations in snowfall, everywhere from 79 inches to 178 inches annually. What? Yeah. Take that, northeastern Ohio. Right. So the word Alaska, you know me and words. I like to dig into the, the words that have to do with the things that we're talking about. Alaska comes from the Aleut word Alaska. So very close, meaning great land, and great in terms of size, of course, uh, just unspoiled and continuous wilderness lands for the most part. And speaking of the land itself, Alaska is essentially divided into five regions, and very quickly, we'll sort of go from north to south. The northern region, and Andy's smiling because I drew a little sketch of the state. You'll have to post this on our Facebook page, <laughs> your little drawing of the state. I just, this was exactly the type of information I was looking for. And the first region is the far north. Um, you're actually in the Arctic at that point. And evidently Eskimos still live subsistence lifestyle up there. So just living off the land, they share their stories orally. They don't write anything down. It's It's extremely interesting in that regard. And what I was interested in finding was would there be any reports from the far north and the last group of reports that i looked at were far north so i was surprised to say the least next comes as you're tracking southward the interior which i mentioned before that's where denali is found and a wide expanses of tundra so actual tundra in the state of alaska that's where you're going to find that going to the southwest it is the southwest region and the way this was described is as a naturalist's wonderland. Uh, brown bears just sort of roam around freely. There's over 240 bird species that call this region home. And it was formed through volcanic activity, which gives the land sort of an extremely rugged character. Going immediately to the east is the south-central portion of Alaska, where over half of Alaska's population lives. So you think about a population of 740,000 people. Half of that lives in this one south-central region, and it's linked. It's really the only area in Alaska that's linked by roads. 
<laughs> so it's it's incredible uh, because that means the rest of it is basically not linked by roads. You probably have to get there by a, a float plane or something, some other way of getting there. And this is where we start to get into the areas where the Bigfoot, the uh, the Sasquatch sightings are concentrated. And there's, there's two reasons for that that we're going to talk about. But then even more southeast of there and starting to touch uh, British Columbia is the interior passage section where there are tons of islands. And I, I talked before about the island shoreline. There's just island after island. And this is the, if I'm not mistaken, this is the heaviest concentration of reports come out of the inside passage. It was shaped by glaciers. There's tons of wildlife, lush islands, uh, in um, Indian or First Nations tribes that you hear a lot about in reference to Alaska, like uh, the Tlingit, the Haida, uh, the Shimshian. These are all uh, Native American groups that are famous for building totem poles and having these creatures in their folklore um, are the type of places that we're going to be talking about a lot tonight. And Ketchikan is a, a town that you keep hearing about again and again. It's the southernmost port of call in Alaska. A lot of your cruises will start out in Ketchikan and people get off the boat and it's sort of touristy in that immediate area. But once you get north of there, uh, it's not necessarily a touristy type state. So that sort of sets the stage for our reports and the rest of our our episode is basically going to be citing reports from these various areas so we'll note where they're from and kind of try to tie those things together any thoughts or reactions that you have to that's great that research on alaska i really i really enjoyed a brief history of alaska that's that's great and you need to post this drawing somewhere <laughs> this needs to be seen Really? I mean, it's not the greatest Alaska ever drawn. It's better than I could do. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, we have the good fortune in preparing for this episode of having an Alaskan source. And that's none other than our friend Beans Baxter, longtime listener. We had the pleasure of meeting Beans in person in Peninsula, Ohio, for the recording of our 100th episode. And Beans very kindly wrote some of his own thoughts about Alaskan Bigfoot, which will lead into some really fascinating reports. So if it's okay with you, I'll just read the letter. Yep, go ahead. Okay. It says, Hi, guys. Thought I would send you some Alaskan Bigfoot stuff for your Sasquatch Nation Alaska episode. You can't talk about Bigfoot in Alaska without mentioning the Sasquatch Tracker. You can find him at sasquatchtracker.com. He has a huge list of Alaska sightings. And I'll stop the letter right there and say Beans is absolutely right. I sort of drew from two twin streams in preparing for this episode tonight. One was Sasquatch Tracker, which, thank you, Beans, I wouldn't have known about that if you hadn't written. And the other was Robert Alley's Raincoast Sasquatch. And the thing that I was kind of amazed and amused to find out is that Robert Alley is an associate and a contributor to SasquatchTracker.com. Cool. So they work hand in hand, which I think is awesome. That's sort of a theme that we've sounded on this show again and again, which is work together if that's possible. We learn more together than just 
on our own. So SasquatchTracker.com, check it out. It's fascinating. And here's what Beans continues to write on one of my favorite, albeit short, encounters on his page is this one. And it's from June of 2015. The Skylek Troop Loop Road from Sterling in Alaska. On June 24, 2015, a firefighter engaged in a firefighting operation briefly encountered a tall bipedal animal walking into the woods. The firefighter stated there were no other crews in the area at the time of the sighting, ruling out possible mistaken identification. The firefighter further stated that, due to the animal's upright posture, gait, and extremity proportions, I do not believe it to be a bear. That isn't too far from where I live. Plus, there was another sighting reported there from back in the 80s. So I went there myself and took a look around. I didn't see anything that I thought was particularly squatchy, but the place is huge and definitely supports a large bear population, so something the size of a Sasquatch could definitely be living around there. The problem with Alaska is that it's so big. If Bigfoot doesn't want to be around people, there are plenty of other places for him to go where there are no people for hundreds of miles. This is my favorite Bigfoot legend of Alaska, and again, this one is not too far from where I live. I someday want to have a friend with a boat take me across the bay so I can find this abandoned town and check it out. And so I'm clicking the link to the story of Port Chatham. And this is, uh, the, the title of this article is Port Chatham Left to Spirits. Alaska is the the byline here. Melania Kell is the oldest resident in Nanwalak and knows many traditional stories about history and culture. One is how her birth village, Port Chatham, was haunted by a Nan- Nantinuk. A Nantinuk. I'm going to just say that until it's natural. Haunted by a Nantinuk, a creature similar to a Sasquatch. Because of Nantinuk's ghostly hauntings, Port Chatham was deserted and shunned. Those who once lived there vowed never to return. Melania was born January 25, 1934, at Port Chatham, a small village at the edge of a peaceful moorage. The village once offered shelter for many people, including Captain Nathaniel Portlock's ship, on his 1786 Alaska expedition. But when Melania was a baby, the family abruptly moved away from Chatham and fled to Nanwalek. We left our houses and the school and started all new here, Melania said, as her words were translated from Sagutstan to English. What had frightened Melania's parents hadn't been a single event. Over a long period of time, a Nantanuk, or big hairy creature, terrorized villagers. Also haunting the areas was the spirit of a woman dressed in draping black clothes that would come out of the cliffs. Her dress was so long she would drag it, Melania said. She had a very white face and would disappear back into the cliffs. Huh. Yeah. The terror people felt when they saw these spirits was nothing compared to what happened to Melania's godfather, Andrew Kamluck. He was logging in 1931 when someone or something hit him over the head with a piece of log-moving equipment. The blow killed him instantly. Melania isn't the only one to tell of strange events at Port Chatham. Port Graham elder Simeon Kavaznikov remembers when Nantia was blamed for the disappearance of a gold miner. This one guy over there had a little place where he was digging for gold, Kavaznikov said. He went up there one time and never came back. No one found any sign of him. 
Another story talks about a sawmill owner named Tom Larson who once spotted, uh, spotted Nantanuck on the beach. After going back to his house to get his gun, he returned to the beach and, quote, the thing looked at him. For some reason, Larson decided against firing a shot. A 1973 issue of the Anchorage Daily News featured an article about the abandoned cannery town of Portlock near Port Chatham. The writer learned the story from a school teacher and his wife in English Bay while on a boat trip. The story is told, Portlock began its existence sometimes after the turn of the century as a cannery town. In 1921, a post office was established there, and for a time, the residents, mostly natives of Russian Aleut mix, lived in peace with their picturesque mountain and sea setting. According to the story, sometime in the beginning years of World War II, rumors around Kenai Peninsula warned that things were not right in Portlock. Men would go up into the hills to hunt sheep and bear and never return, some stories told of mutilated bodies that were torn and dismembered in a way that bears could not or would not do. Tales were told of villagers tracking moose over soft ground. They would find giant man-like tracks over 18 inches in length, closing upon those of the moose. The signs of a short struggle where the grass had been matted down, then only the deep tracks of the man-like animal departing toward the high fog-shrouded mountains. Eventually, town folk decided to move en masse, and by 1950, the U.S. Post Office had closed there. And it continues on, but it finally says at the end of this article, Melania said that once her family moved away from Port Chatham, the Nantanuck stayed far away and left them in peace. She grew up in Nanwalek, raised 13 children, and remains one of the few regional elders who can pass on these old stories and traditions. So Beans continues, if you guys have any Alaska questions, hit me up. I'll do my best to answer them. Good luck with your Sasquatch Nation shows. I think it's a great idea. Hope to see you guys again someday. Beans. Wow. That that last report, we could just end it right here. (laughs) I mean, that's just with doing this, with the Sasquatch Nation research for Alaska. The one thing that seems to be common in Alaska with Bigfoot sightings is them killing people. I mean, I ran across that more times than I can keep track of. Either that or the opposite of humans killing them are almost like, you know, the classic has the gun raised, looking through the sights, and then for some reason not firing that story is awesome i mean and then you add the lady with the white and the dress what (laughs) right i would move away exactly who wouldn't (laughs) right right so yeah you're right there's uh definitely a violent streak in many of these stories to these creatures and um why don't we get into some more reports but i will just want to before we move away from that too quickly i just want to say beans Feeling is mutual. We hope to see you again someday. And hearing all these reports and reading the Come to Alaska website, I feel like maybe it's That's time what goes to Alaska. for us to go to you. So um, we the will definitely will be up soon. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Send Sasquatch to Alaska. Okay, so my first report is from 1992. Um, it take it's from the book Bigfoot Across America. And it it takes place between Anchorage and Fairbanks. A couple is driving in their car near Denali Park. And 
by the process of elimination, this could be a Bigfoot. And this is this is being quoted here, but it says, I believe this is the driver, saying, My lights hit something sitting on the yellow line in the middle of the road with its legs pulled up to its chest and its arm folded, arms folded over its knees, its head between its arms looking toward the ground. It had long, reddish-colored, human-like hair. At first, I thought it was an orangutan. Then I thought to myself, what would an orangutan be doing in the middle of, of nowhere in Alaska? I thought the only way that could have been an, or, an orangutan is if there's a circus out here. I knew that was not a possibility in such a remote area. I drove right next to it, and I was at its level. If I had been going slow, I could have touched it easily. I've lived here almost all my life, and there is no animal native to Alaska that could resemble this thing in any way. So that's a very unusual report, but I thought it very interesting. Um, Bigfoot just sitting in the middle of the road, taking a little nap. No one's out here in Alaska. I'll just take a nap right here in the middle of the road. But I think the point, that well, something we can take from this is the hair color. It's kind of the classic reddish-brown hair color. It's a weird sighting, I'll admit. It's... I like that detail. I Just what you said, the um, the color is pretty interesting. And we've heard people hypothesize that Bigfoot likes roads because they hold heat. I don't know. Maybe. It gets cold and <laughs> yeah. this, what is it? The microclimate of Alaska? Right, right. He needs the road's heat. Yeah. How it, are we supposed to know? Did it say in there? Did I hear you right? He drove by close enough that he felt like he could have reached yeah, out. Yeah, if he was going slow, it? he could have touched it. Oh, my goodness. What were you thinking? Why didn't you go slow? <laughs> I know. Sorry if you're listening, anonymous <laughs> right. Bigfoot witness. He's going he's gonna to mean tweet us now. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, okay, that's cool. Yet another case of from a car witnessing, which has sort of a, become a hobby horse of mine. The more Bigfoot reports we looked at, the more it seems like seeing one from a car is, might be your best chance. I wonder if there is a percentage out there somewhere in internet land of every sighting ever, pretty much, it's to, be, in a car. It's got to be high. It's got to be, like, at least in the 30% range. Okay, I'm going to take us way back in time for my <laughs> next report. And this brings a couple threads together, most notably the violent reports, so that you see that this is a recurring theme. The thing that makes this so incredibly intriguing to me, even though it's from 1898, and whenever you go back that far, it starts to raise questions about the veracity of the story. This one was evidently submitted to a session of Congress because it was the... uh, official Copper River Exploring Expedition. This was reported to Captain W.R. Abercrombie of the 2nd U.S. Infantry. This is very well documented, which makes me really wonder what's going on here. The uh, exploration was to the Valdez Copper River area, and I love this this old-school description. One big raw-boned Swede... So a person of Swedish extraction in particular described to me how this demon was had strangled his son on the glacier. 
His story being that he had just started from the 12-mile plant, a small collection of huts just along the coast range of mountains from Valdez, with his son to go to the coast in company with some other prospectors. When halfway up the summit of the glacier, his son, who was ahead of him hauling a sled while he was behind pushing, called to him, saying that the demon had attacked him and had his arms around his neck. The father ran to the son's assistance, but as he described it, his son, being very strong, soon drove the demon away, and they passed on their way up toward the summit of Valdez Glacier. The weather was very cold, the wind was blowing very hard, so that it made traveling very difficult in passing over the ice between the huge crevices through which it was necessary to pick their way to gain the summit. While in the thickest of these crevices, the demon again appeared. He said it to be a small, heavy-built man and very active. He again sprang on the son's shoulders, this time with such a grasp that although the father did all he could to release him, the demon finally strangled the son to death. The old man then put the son on a sled and brought him down to 12 Mile Camp, where the other prospectors helped bury him. Now that sounds like a fantastic old school newspaper report, except for the fact that it's tied into the government and evidently going by the information, it was submitted to a government official or, uh, you know, the uh, session of Congress. So all of that being said, it sort of sets the tone for some of these reports, not all of them, certainly, but some of them that have to do with some sort of hairy creature that just does not want human beings around to the degree that they will kill if necessary. Your thoughts? That's crazy. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I, you know, mentally preparing for Sasquatch Nation Alaska, I was not prepared for the fact that Bigfoot would be killing so many innocent people. But the thing that really stands out with that is doesn't it doesn't mention the fact that the height is small? In that case, yes. Because there's other reports I have, and I think you may have run across them, but that's another thing in Alaska. They're not always 12-foot-tall monsters. They're short. And to me, that that's interesting. But you can kind of try to think, like, maybe... It's adapted to be smaller, so it needs less food, but who knows? Who knows with theories like that? The thing that I would really be interested in finding out, and I don't know how you would do this, but it would be interesting to see if the size of the creature that was reported grew the more the, the further you went north. Because in truth, I mean, down in the, um, the southerly regions where the vast majority of reports come from, it is essentially a rainforest climate, mm -hmm. and so it would suggest maybe a smaller creature, although there's a variety. But you're right. There is everything from smallish to extremely large creatures that are described here. And one of the reports I'll get to here in a, just a couple minutes, you've got a pretty big creature, but it's also a very unusual account, I'll say that. So, Would you like to do that right now? No, I would like to do one before that. Oh. I'm going to make you wait the suspense. on the high strangeness case that I was able to come across. But I do have one that I, it just is very striking to me. And part of it is, 
It's accompanied by an illustration in Robert Alley's Raincoat Sasquatch. And uh, here's the picture. I'll show Andy. And what we've got here is Bigfoot evidently on the hunt, which is great. And here's the story. Several years ago, well, I'll back up. Sorry about that. In 1948, one such sighting was alleged to have involved a deer being pursued by a Sasquatch. As previously documented, Al Jackson has such a story. And this is a direct quote. Several years ago, just before he died, my cousin W.K. told me of an experience he had as a teenager. My cousin told me we were all playing on North Tongass Road near Cranberry Road, north of Ketchikan, in the summer of 1948, five of us, when a deer jumped out of the bush on a bluff above the road and ran across the highway like something was after it. It was followed just seconds later by a big, black, hairy, ten-foot creature like a gorilla on two legs, which hesitated for a moment to look at us. It was less than 40 feet from the nearest boy and then continued running across the road into the trees on the ocean side of the road after the deer. My uncle told us not to tell anyone because he said someone might want to shoot it. End quote. And in the drawing, you have a really effective image of a steep bluff coming down to this road. Bigfoot is like in full stride tearing after this deer that's just got to be like scared completely out of its mind. I would never walk in the woods again. (laughs) That would be, could you imagine being like, oh, it's a deer. Huh. I wonder what it's running from. And then it just comes. Oh, that 10 foot huge bipedal gorilla. Yeah. Normal day in Alaska. That explains it. (laughs) It explains why the deer is tearing off. But there's tons of uh, like deer stories, really, when you go looking for it, and hunters and hunting. You know, I guess that's the, the flip side, and we might as well say right now, you know, the one part of the concentration of reports being in sort of the temperate zone, the, the rainforest, if you will, makes sense. Warmer, more time to hunt, more food to eat. But the other side of this, and, you know, it's guys like Lauren Coleman and so forth that helped me to realize this, is there's more reports from those areas because there's more people, more people to see the creatures. You don't get as many reports from the far-flung, far north and the interior because there's just less people around to submit reports. And those who have sightings in those areas probably aren't as inclined to share reports, or they may just feel that it's sort of a part of their everyday lives mm-hmm. in the wilderness, in, in the last frontier of North America. So I just wanted to say those two things as we're moving through today. What's next on your agenda? Now, I have a short, but this is probably one of my favorite sightings that I found. And it just, it puts a mental image in your head that just makes you go, wow. Awesome. This took place in late August of 1968, and it took place north of Hayter. Am I pronouncing this right? Hyder, I think. Hyder. But I don't know. We have pre-established before this episode, we started recording, that I cannot pronounce names of Alaska. <laughs> don't be a Hyder hater. <laughs> I'm sorry, Hyder. Okay, so... It's not Minnesota. It's oh, Alaska. Oh, don't you know it's Alaska. Oh, uh, <laughs> Okay, so two Please men continue. stopped 
and shot at what they thought was a bear. And then it got up on two legs and walked up a hill. And just to me, like, could you imagine, like, being being in your pickup truck? I don't know if they're in a pickup truck. So I see in my head. They're in a pickup truck and like, oh, it's a bear. Let's see if we can get it. Like, rolling down the window, like, putting up your gun, like, firing off a shot. And then, like, getting up, like, what you think is, like, that the back of a bear, standing up and then walking off and then, like, up a hill. So it's not natural for it to be doing that. And if it was a bear, it'd probably go back on all fours yeah, going up a it hill. Just, yeah, it's going up a hill. I would have to imagine that that type of situation happens quite a bit. And sometimes it's reported and probably many times it's not. But you're right, that image is pretty, that sticks with you. you mm-hmm. start thinking about that one. Did you say that was from 1968? Yes. Well, as it happens, I have a 1968 report. And the reason that I wanted to include this one in particular is because it involves a 14-year-old boy, which you are getting increasingly close to. Um, 1968, the year of the Sasquatch. And I'll... I will uh, summarize this a little bit, but the father and teen son had been fishing together along the Herbert River Trail, which is uh, in the vicinity of Juneau. Okay. So again, we're talking about the southeast part of the state. 14-year-old teen approaches the trail through some brush, turns to look where he had come from, and sees someone walking across the river bar. He believed it was his father and waited. Twenty minutes later, the father arrives and the son asks if he had been on the bar. The father replied no, that he had been walking along the riverbank close to alders. The father said it must have been a bear that the teen had seen. The teen explained he had seen something that walked bipedally with arms swinging. When they eventually reached the trailhead, there were no other vehicles ruling out the possibility of the subject being a person. And that was a report taken by a D. Shepard, who is a Sasquatch Tracker associate via personal email in 2015. So, hey, Dad, was that you? No. No. Probably Bigfoot. It's the last time we ever go fishing. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, sort of a brief report, but sort of a slice-of-life one, too. And just right place, right time, or wrong place, wrong time, depending on (laughs) your perspective. Yeah, that's that's Alaska Bigfoot. Short but sweet. I mean, unless you're in a town that gets abandoned because you have Bigfoot killing off people. I mean, Alaska, it's... That did not show up on the website, by the way. The well, the Come to Alaska. Seriously, Come to Alaska website? They, start, they sort of glossed over the whole, um, we've had towns <laughs> closed down of... because of Bigfoot attacks. <laughs> And wraith-like women coming out of the cliff. <laughs> well, don't you want to come and live here now? <laughs> so, uh, anyway, w- do you have another one? I I could find one, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. For my magic bibliography notebook. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. I have a really generic one. Um, another one connecting to water. This was uh, the Yukon River um, near, if that's a G, I think it's... Let's call it Galena. Galena. And this was in the summer of 19... Oh, wow. 
Another 68 one. Oh, this might be the same. Was yours near dusk? Because this is near dusk. I doubt it, but... Because this is from the summer of 1968. Someone saw a Bigfoot on a riverbank near dusk. So maybe that's the same report. Right. And keep in mind, dusk in summer in Alaska (laughs) can be relatively late. One o'clock in in the the morning. (laughs) See, Alaska, you're great. You have great Bigfoot, but I don't know about all your sun and lack of sun. That's kind of... I don't know if you would do very well. I would be like... (laughs) (laughs) When will the sun set? Um, now, if you would give me a second, I have a report, I believe it's in this book, um, of Bigfoot brutally murdering people. Oh, boy. It seems like you are sort of gravitating to that theme. It's finding me. No. (laughs) Oh, great. I don't know how I feel about that either. Um, this is oddly enough... In Bigfoot All Over the Country. No kidding. Um, a kid's book. Well, um, you know, it, it's funny you say that because if you recall the Chetco incident that's in, um, in uh, on the track of Bigfoot, that's Marion mm-hmm. T. Place also. Yeah. Mary- so maybe she had a twinkle in her eye thinking of all these little kids reading Bigfoot books. <laughs> and in the middle of them, she sticks these really horrible stories. You know, maybe she had that sense of humor. I don't know. So you got it oh, there? the train. The train. Our, the it, official Sasquatch train is. is going by. That's right. Hailing um, hailing you from afar. <laughs> Hello, Sasquatch listeners. Again, it's like the second loudest train we've ever had. We're on our had. way to Erie, Pennsylvania. See you later. Okay, so this was... I don't know if it... Oh, it will say. This is about the Nahani monster. Mm-hmm. Um... When some local old-timer prospectors were asked if they had ever seen Sasquatch during prospecting, they talked about this, and it was during the Klondike Gold Rush in the late 1890s and early 1900s. Thousands of gold seekers traveled by ship from American ports on the Pacific coast to Wrangell. Oh, checking. Yeah. They landed there rather than at a more northerly, densely overcrowded port of Skagway. Small river boats transported them eastward up to Stick Stickin? I can't. Sorry. Yeah, let's just say Stickin. <laughs> Sorry. Stickin'y, maybe. Stickin'y Stick- River, by the, up to the Stickin'y River to Telegraph Creek. I can read that. You know what? I think we should have Skyped in Beans. Yes. And we could have just fed him these names. <laughs> He's like, so oh, please that's forgive that us. Is. This is, I'm sorry. We, well, I I'm don't bad know with, either. like, Ohio names, too. <laughs> and I, I'm from here. From there, they trekked on foot on snowshoes in winter, deep in the Canada's Northwest Territory and part of the Yukon. This is where it gets good. And then, found Nahini Ritter. Okay. Okay, so... This is partially from memory, because I don't want to read it all. But it's... The search part... There was a group of people who went out, and they never came back. And so a search party went out. Four missing miners, as the story goes, were dead. Their bodies torn to bits and partially devoured. There were no sign of wolves or bears in the vicinity. But ample evidence of huge man-like footprints. This led the the searchers to conclude that a the prospectors had been murdered by either a crazed prospector, a big-footed Indian, or a wild man. And now, this is where you go, oh, wow, that's such a cool story. Except is, except Marion T. Place goes on to say, 
The truth of the story is that two men named McLeod were found shot to death in a camp on the on the South Nahini. No mention was ever made in reports to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police of giant-sized pr- footprints being found in or around the campsite. So how in the world did that get from one to another? That's that's a very perplexing question. So there's some legendary yeah. things happening along with that. I'd love to just leave it at they got devoured and partially devoured, but... The spinning of a tale may mm-hmm. have something to do with some of these reports. So what's interesting now, this is sort of my linchpin discovery, and it's, uh, I have you know Sasquatch Tracker to thank, but I was just fascinated by this because it ties together a number of things that I find extremely interesting. And in some ways, it's an emblem of 70s reports, where we've gone from historically sort of these bloodthirsty creatures to now there's a creature with a message to give. Here is the story. This comes from the Kodiak Daily Mirror newspaper. And uh, the, the story is this. Kodiak resident... Dana Jack Allen is sure he's had several encounters with what some Alaska natives call Hairy Man, the creature known as the Pacific Northwest as Bigfoot. He's also sure the creatures have given him a distinct message, leave us alone. Jack Allen's fascination with the creatures goes back to a cold morning in 1979 in the remote Etolan Island area near Wrangell. He and his hunting partner were hoping to harvest some of the deer they knew inhabited an alpine meadow at the head of the fjord. Jack Allen wrote the following about his experience. The deer we were hunting were at an elevation of about 700 feet. We arrived in the inlet just before dark in the late fall. My partner did not trust the anchorage or the weather, so he opted to stay on the boat while I climbed up to where we knew the deer to be spending the night. I found a bench and folded myself up into a large piece of visqueen in my sleeping bag on a small outcropping about eight feet above a well-worn trail. My friend was to meet me at this spot before dawn the next morning, and we knew we would bag some deer easily in the nearby meadow just after it got light enough to shoot. We had seen deer here several times, but had never taken advantage of the fact. Just before I went to sleep, I remember seeing the mast light on the boat in the inlet and imagining the boom hung with our limit of deer. I was awakened before dawn. Around one o'clock, my sleeping bag was jerked out from under me instantly, like the magician does with the tablecloth and the glass. I awoke the moment it happened, curled into a fetal position and freezing my fanny. That's not me, um, like, editing or editorializing. (laughs) That's that's the quote, freezing my fanny. Just want to make sure that gets said. I laid there for a few seconds trying to figure out what had happened. I figured... Something had either happened to the boat or my pal had somehow spotted a trove of fat deer. I sat up and pulled on my boots looking for my mate to explain what was going on. I was still not fully awake, but for fear of scaring the deer, I refrained from calling to my friend. It had snowed almost an inch since I went to sleep, and peering over the ledge, I could see people tracks in the snow leading up the hill toward the meadow. I grabbed my rifle and slogged down the trail, peering at the ground in the dark and wondering how and why my somewhat elderly companion had chosen that unusual method of rousing me from the sack. I was stepping in the footprints in the snow. They were dark and easy to see, and was startling to think my 
partner had not been the one to zip my bag out from under me. Then realization struck me, and I was gripped with fear. The tracks I was so carefully stepping in were not human. They were the imprints of bare feet, but almost twice the size of my own size 10 boots. This is not real, I thought. I could hear nothing except the snowflakes falling gently to the ground. Every hair on my body was erect, sensing the air for obvious logical solution. I cannot shoot anything, I told myself. This is a very carefully planned prank, and all I need is to lose control and end up hurting someone. I double-checked the safety on the rifle and determined that this joke was about to be on them. Cool as a cucumber, I walked another few steps up the hill where I would be able to see the crest of the rise I was on. There was a large hemlock tree here, and I decided to climb it and wait out the pranksters who were trying to scare me out of my wits. Checking the sky, I noticed that within a few minutes the clouds would reveal the full moon, providing me with enough light to see what was going on. I took a few more steps, marveling at the perfection that these guys had achieved with the footprints. Then I knew it was no joke. I felt an unmistakable sense of warning as clearly as if someone had spoken. It wasn't logic. It wasn't fear. It was communication. I stopped and looked up. Fifteen feet away, one hand on his hip, the other gripping a branch of the hemlock that was just above my head, was the biggest, hairiest guy on two legs I ever want to see. Without thinking, I started to thumb the safety off. He turned his head to stare at me straight in the eyes. His teeth were showing, but it was not a snarl or a grin. I want to say it was a knowing smile. I knew I could place a killing shot, but I also knew it would be wrong, even criminal. He was saying to me, with all the power of the Spirit, Leave me alone. It was as if more than one voice was speaking to me. It was a collective consciousness whispering with the same longing voice, Leave me alone. One instant he was there, and the next he turned and fled silently into the woods. At first I thought that it was a dream, but then I could feel that spirit like a mist in the forest, wanting to be left alone. Jack Allen said he recalled little as he ran and trembled down the hill to the beach, hollering all the way. His partner, who was waiting on the beach, insisted he made the trip down in half the usual time. After daylight, the two retraced Jack Allen's steps up the hillside. The footsteps he had followed earlier measured 17 inches long and 5 or 6 inches wide. The impressions left in the mossy ground convinced them the creature had weighed 6 to 800 pounds. When they measured from the ground to the hemlock branch, the creature had grasped as he turned. They found the distance was 9.5 feet. My messenger was 7.5 to 8 feet tall, Jack Allen said. He said the creature looked very much like the one portrayed in the movie Harry and the Hendersons. This one was equally as large, but more lean. He had long, silky hair. On his arm, it was a good six inches long. He walked erect, and he was quiet. He made no sound. He was graceful. His movements were graceful. I couldn't see his face too well, but it seemed like his skin was leathery. His eyes were dark. He had a glint in his eye. He had intelligence. A short time after that encounter, he said... The Wrangell Sentinel carried a photograph taken from the air of the tracks of a two-legged creature in the deep snows of the mountains. Jack Allen, who is 40, was raised on a homestead in the Talkeetna Mountains and has spent his share of time in the Alaska bush. He realizes that telling his story will convince some people he is more in the business of hot air than cold. But as he says, I've spent enough time in the woods to know the difference between when something is scaring me and I'm scaring myself 
There is no question in my mind about what I saw. Your reaction. That's amazing, but I don't know if that's the right words. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say. Um, I think it's interesting, the knowing grin. Is that what he said? The knowing smile? Yeah, like a knowing grin. I would love to see a Bigfoot giving me a knowing grin. And just be like, yep, you've waited for this. And then telling... I think the the high strangeness part of it, with the whole idea of, like, it just him feeling and then, like, hearing leave me alone is very interesting. Such a good story. That wins. That wins best <laughs> best Alaska report. Yeah, it's not atypical of 1970s Bigfoot reports. The whole idea of communication happening, it just marks a whole switch. And, you know, it's been well documented that the 70s were this time of high strangeness, as you said, of things that never had been reported about the phenomena before. Now we're all sort of bleeding together and I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what happened uh, to this man, but by his own accounting, he had an up-close and uh, meaningful interaction with this creature, but sending a very clear message that they just want to be left alone and separate from humanity, which is probably understandable. I think it's interesting he mentions Harry and the Hendersons, but to be honest, that's a very believable, in a certain way, costume, very well done. That's just, that's such a good report that leaves you thinking. And then, like, he talks about feeling like the spirit wanting to be alone. I just think that's so interesting. That's very interesting. It makes me think about um, almost like what a Native American describes as they want to be left alone and it's a spirit and he says those things that are all well that are parallel to what we see as classic like bigfoot lore from native americans and first nations yeah it was published in the paper in 93 so yeah the the report that he was um just recounting what had happened to him back in 79 relatively young man at that point Others that you have? Do you have something else? Because we're... Do you have anything else? Yeah, I do have something else. You share that. Because all my stuff's short. I like yours. Okay. You're winning so far. (laughs) Sasquatch Nation, who can pick the better (laughs) shit? It's not a competition. But, uh, okay, so the last report that I have... Well, no, it's not the last report I have. This is the last report I have from uh, SasquatchTracker.com. And I'll super summarize this one because I definitely want to get to some of the ones in Raincoast Sasquatch. But the reason that I thought that this was significant is that this came from the far north. Because up to this this point in sifting through reports, really wasn't getting anything from up there. And then all of a sudden in, um, when was this? Oh, uh, I think 2012. Yeah. No, it was a little, it was, the report was given in 2012. It was relatively the same time period that took place. And what's important here is that it's one of two to come out of this river valley that's so far north in Alaska that this river flows down to the Arctic Ocean. 
Huh. Okay. So <laughs> you're really north at this point. And it was a mother and three sons. I'm sorry. It's a mother and sons seeing three Sasquatch together. So we're out, they're out boating. Here, I'll just, I'll just skim it. We were out boating. This is the mom making the report. Me and my sons, four days before my husband's birthday. Never forget the date. We're heading towards the mouth of the river. There was an all-night rescue that had happened. A boat had ran aground and all this, this stuff. So they were heading back to the cabin where they were dropped off. On our way, we saw three big black creatures standing by Ruth Hill. These were big black giant figures standing by the big hill, moving around, walking around for about an hour, watching us move with our boat. The three were standing, walking about the same area by the hill. Looks like they were using this hill for shelter, hanging around the same area. And it goes on in description and stuff, but an hour-long sighting of three large black Bigfoot. They went back later on. I think the next day they were gone. So they weren't seeing stumps or something, misidentification. But an hour-long sighting. I mean, that that's... I, to me, that uh, is just astounding and i don't know i don't know what else to make of it except the thing that makes me wonder the little question that i have with that story is did the rescue that happened kind of draw in the mm-hmm. sasquatch like were they curious about what was happening I, I i know i'm impressing my own ideas onto that story but it just raises the question were they interested in what was happening and then Knowing that everything was okay, they just Mm -hmm. drifted back into the woods. Who knows? I think the hour is weird. I'm skeptical of that hour, but that's that's my own opinion. It may have been an hour and a half, and time flew by because they're having such a good time watching the Bigfoot. And the other detail is I didn't read is that they took pictures, but they were all blurry. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, come on. You have an hour to take pictures. (laughs) I don't know. But I I just thought the fact that it was one of two reports coming out of that far north region was was very interesting to me, as well as not one or two, but three. Three. Three is a rare number of Bigfoot sightings. Yeah. So I don't know. But I just wanted to share that one. A few more with the time that we have left come out of Robert Alley, Raincoast Sasquatch, and... Again, you have some aggressive behavior, I would say. It's not as violent as some of the stuff that we've been talking about, but I'll just do this one report here from 1966. A Ketchikan woman known to me personally, Doris Yeoman, not her real name, recounted a frightening episode that occurred to her and five friends involving something that allegedly lifted their car one night in a recreation area just north of Ketchikan. It was an August evening in 1966. We were enjoying an evening at Ward Lake. There were six of us, and we were all around the car. A big old Ford Thunderbird parked in the old parking lot at Ward Lake, close to the water and only about 30 feet from the forest. The car was parked facing the exit to the road out. There were three guys and three of us girls. It was cloudy, but not raining. It was about 11 p.m., dark out. It was real quiet. There was no wind at all. Only ones there just hanging out around by the beach. But one of the girls heard some noise in the bush, and we all scrambled back in the car. The guy who was driving started the engine, but before he could turn on the lights or put it in gear, something picked up the whole rear end of the car off the ground. But one of my girlfriends screamed, and the driver gunned the engine, 
but the wheels were off the ground and we had to just sit there, wheels spinning in the air. By the angle of the car, I would say we were tipped forward at least 30 degrees. The guys were yelling at each other to go and the girls were both screaming. I just put my hands over my ears to block it out. Then whatever it was that was holding us up just started shaking the car from side to side, not letting it down at all. It just picked up the car, the back of the car and shook it like a toy. The car had its wheels and gear and spinning the whole time. It was shaking like that for over a minute, maybe a minute and a half, and then whatever it was just dropped us. The wheels spun on the gravel and we were out of there. Later on, one of the girls said she had seen something large and brown standing in the bush. We didn't go back there for a long time, and now all but one of the others have moved away. Bigfoot doesn't like cars, apparently. Or at least he just likes to play with them. Um, I think the, I like how it's like, it's like picking it up, and it's like, okay, go! And it's like the wheels start spinning, and you're not going anywhere. That's so good. It's like, we can't, we just have to wait it out. I mean, what do you do? You don't. I, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. See, and the thing about that story is if you wanted to prank your friends and you could put the car in neutral and gun your engine and you could be like, oh, Bigfoot's got our, you know, our rear bumper and, you know, young girls would scream mm-hmm. and freak out about that sort of thing and guys would like start yelling. But you can't fake your car being lifted up 30 degrees, you know, almost close to like a 45 degree angle. That's that's not something that is, you know. And if uh, you can do that, punkable. please don't. Yeah. Please don't. No one likes that. You'll have no friends after right. that. Right. So um, along those same lines, and this will be the last report that I get into, but you'll see the connection right away. Same area, generally. Dave and Alberta M. of Ketchikan related to me in 2001. This is Robert Alley again. What appeared to be a case of a Sasquatch, quote-unquote, caught in the act. The act of what, you ask? Let's continue. The couple really enjoy the scenery and tranquility that the forest roads of Revilla Island offer. Enjoy seeing wildlife and don't let stories of Kushtakas, that's the one of the names, one of many for these creatures in Alaska, don't let stories of Kushtakas stop them from getting out. On this occasion, however, something was going to spoil their recreation. They related that they were parked in their car near Ward Lake that night, December 23, 2000, when they noticed something trying to sneak up on them. My wife and I were parked just off Revilla Road near the junction of, with the paved Ward Lake Road, just enjoying the music from the car radio. It was late, real dark. We had the car running with the headlights shining on the snow in an open area beside the highway. The light was real bright off the snow in a big arc to the left and right, and the snow reflected well enough that you could see if anyone or anything were approaching on either side. We had the windows down, and it was real quiet out, no other cars or noises around at all. Just then, I noticed a real rank odor, kind of like the smell of wet dog hair, and I looked around. Off to the left, slightly behind the car and to the side, about 60 yards away, I noticed movement and could make out a large black form crawling, just like a man on his belly. When I looked at it, it would stop. And when I would look back after a few seconds, it would be crawling, and then stop again while I stared at it. It wasn't a bear, and I couldn't think what a person would be doing out there crawling belly down in the snow. 
I told Alberta to roll up the window. I didn't want whatever it was to come reaching up and grab her through the window. In the light reflecting off the snow, I could see what looked like a faint reddish-whitish reflection from its eyes, and the face appeared almost human. I put the car in gear and pulled around away from it and headed back down the highway, but the lights didn't swing in its direction again as we got going. It seemed big, about seven feet if it were standing up, I would guess. I've heard all the stories about kushtakas and that sort of thing, but I've never heard of them sneaking up on a car. But that's what it seemed to be doing. That is terrifying. <laughs> so, moral story is, don't go out prospecting alone in Alaska. Don't go out logging alone in Alaska. Don't sit in your car, even if you're with people in Alaska. Cause, Especially if you're at Ward Lake. Yeah. Don't. No. That's... That's awesome. I still want to go to Alaska. I though. do. <laughs> Send Sasso to Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> well, any other concluding thoughts on Alaska? What do you What do you I think, think we, overall? We're on about... the tip of the iceberg, tip of the yes. glacier. Yes. Ice perfect. Tip of the glacier. So maybe we'll do Sasquatch Nation selects part two or something. Who knows? Who knows? As Bigfoot comes up our staircase. <laughs> that is that's the eye-opening thing is that alaska is is just rife with reports and uh it truly is the last frontier maybe the last frontier for north american bigfoot studies as well so one more time i would like to say thank you to beans baxter for your extremely valuable input into tonight's Sasquatch Nation episode. Yeah, it would be it wouldn't be anything close to what it was. I mean, we wouldn't have gone an hour and nine minutes if we didn't have your letter. All right, so if you would like to contact us, as always, you can write us at what is our email address? Sasquatch mail. Sasquatch mail at, at gmail.com. And our next Sasquatch Nation, if you'd like to write in about that, is going to be Arizona. So if you live in Arizona and have gone hiking, tell us what you think. If you've experienced something in Arizona, let us know. If there even is Bigfoot in Arizona. Oh, there's definitely know. Bigfoot in Arizona. I know this. If you'd like to fund our way to Alaska, <laughs> right. let us know. Right. Oh, and you can also find us at our Facebook page, aforementioned Facebook page, and on Twitter, at Show. I like the Twitter account a lot. That's that's pretty fun. So hit and, us up and keep there. A, keep an eye open for the um, Alaska drawing you did. Oh, yeah. We'll I th- put that up on there. I feel as though I must, at this point, put my sketch up there. So for Beans Baxter, Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, for Robert Alley and the Sasquatch Tracker, and for all those who in the great far northwest Around the track of Bigfoot, this is Mark and Andy Matsky saying, stay away from Ward Lake. Send Sasquatch to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>